1: Willkommen, Bienvenue, Welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world. With Uli Baer. Let's say a university decides to adopt absolute free speech rules. Anyone can speak, including people who promulgate hate speech, absurd views, or deeply offensive and even illegal points of views. Has a university then done its job fully? Has it created a free marketplace of ideas that works for everyone? Professor Corey Bretschneider, who teaches political theory and public policy at Brown University, disagrees. While he thinks that absolute speech rights should prevail, he also thinks the university has a second obligation. The university has ways of speaking, of expressing its values, of making them unambiguously clear. He argues that universities can indeed and must indeed speak when they have such rules that all speech should be permitted i speak with him about these issues that he's addressed in other works he's a scholar of constitutional law he has a jd from stanford university and a degree in political science from princeton and he's thought deeply about the limits of free speech and the way democracy must articulate its values in other ways Really excited to speak with Professor Corey Bretschneider today. Professor Bretschneider is professor of political science at Brown University. You have a degree in politics from Princeton and a law degree from Stanford, so you're both a political scientist and someone who's an expert in constitutional law and in legal theory. Thank you, first of all, for joining me today. Uh, so- my pleasure, and looking forward to the conversation. So, Corey, so you're the author of two really important and interesting books that seem to have gotten more relevant recently. One is out, one is coming out. The first book that you published a few years ago, When the State Speaks, What Should It Say? How Democracies Can Protect Expression and Promote Equality. So a question of when the state speaks, what should it say? And then your other book we'll touch upon in a little bit, coming out soon, later this year, The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution, For future presidents, let's hope it's also for the current president. (laughs) He may be listening in. (laughs) You can always hope. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And, And to start us out, the book you wrote a little while ago, When the State Speaks, What Should It Say, has an argument where you sort of walked right into a debate that's now been roiling the nation for the last two years of is there any cause ever, any reason ever to regulate speech on behalf of the government? Right. So could you Uh, say how you got into this topic and why you picked this this area? And in your subtitle, you say to protect expression, free expression, and to also promote equality, those two values.
0: Yeah, I think that I am attracted to questions where I feel like there are sort of two rigid sides to a debate and my interest is in finding a third side. And I had an intuition, I've had an intuition for a long time that that's really true of the state of affairs, not just in the debate of political theory about free speech, but also in the state of the law. So in the United States, we have a rule in constitutional law and First Amendment free speech jurisprudence called viewpoint neutrality. And what that doctrine says is that any opinion, basically, and speech goes beyond this, but at minimum, any opinion gets protection and the government can't involve itself in a discrimination between viewpoints, at least when it comes to things, certainly like the criminal Law. Now, that's a very radical view that's very different, not only from Europe, but actually for really the rest of the world. I think it's every country in the world except for the United States has more restrictive free speech rules than we do. And in particular, hate speech is where that clash happens. So in the U.S., certainly you can ban true threats and incitement to violence. But what you can't ban is what I call a hateful viewpoint or an opinion that African-Americans or Jews or based on race or ethnicity, that somebody is inferior to another, even under law. So things like advocating genocide, for instance, or denying the Holocaust are protected speech in the United States. And of course, in Europe and many other, well, the rest of the world, there are different categories for limiting opinion, especially in these areas. So my intuition, my hope at the beginning of the book, and well, it's what I, I did in the book, is to try to say, you know, if there's a way, there is a way, I think, of defending the U.S. view, but it can't be just ignorant of the threat faced by hateful viewpoints. They're viewpoints that threaten the foundation of democracy. If they win out, democracy is gone. There's certainly not going to be a First Amendment, and people who... Hold these views are not fans of the First Amendment. I think that American theorists, to be blunt, and philosophers, and also the legal opinions, have just done a bad job of explaining how the concern about the danger of these viewpoints fits with our very radical jurisprudence. So that's the end.
1: So if we start with the first premise, you're saying that America, you know, United States has carved out a special position, and. We all agree and understand why we would want to give every citizen the right to express him or herself, because the idea of self-governance is that everybody should contribute. So on principle, it's a good idea. Let's let anybody speak. And then before we even get to hate speech or kind of, you know, viral and racism or a kind of speech that wants to overthrow the government or get rid of the rights right. to speak. So the idea behind it, if you could lay that out, because as you say, it's specifically American, but Americans tend to believe, and I think rightly so, it has something to do with our form of democracy. It's not just an American way, but not just we're not Canadians, (laughs) (laughs) but but somehow it protects inherently our idea of what democracy should be, right, that we can all say what we want to say.
0: Yes, that is exactly my starting point, and I'm, I guess, impressed and inspired by a Brown professor. People often think that I'm picking this theorist because I teach at Brown. It's also, I think he was the greatest 20th century thinker of free speech. Alexander Mickeljohn really did the best job of connecting those two things. And he does it with a beautiful metaphor. He says, imagine that we're all in something like the New England town meeting. And this is a meeting where there is a form of direct democracy and, you know, people are going to vote at the end of the meeting on some issue. And Let's just imagine that the meeting, this isn't his example, but it's mine, that, that we're debating something very banal. Like, do we build a bridge on the north side of town or the south side of town? And people are speaking. And the, the moderator, who's really his job is to call on people, decides, you know what? I'm sick of hearing the arguments for the north side of town. These people are ridiculous. They would, you know, build a bridge to nowhere. There, there's no empirical argument for this. Bridge. And he just starts intervening by saying, well, I'm going to cut the dumb people off or the arguments that I don't like off. Now, intuitively, and this is John's example that I'm pulling it out, there's something wrong with that, not just because it interferes with the right of the speaker in a democracy, but if you're going to vote north or south and you can't hear half the argument, then how are you going to be able to make a vote as an informed citizen? So that sort of intuition pump, that story, that metaphor helps us to see why as listeners in a democracy and as speakers, you have to be able to hear all viewpoints. Now, that includes, in my view, viewpoints that are really opposed to the foundational ideals of the United States constitutional system, arguments against democracy. All of these things are things that I think we need to be able to hear, even if they are, you know, in the so, moderate word, stupid or wrong or hateful. So what's being
1: protected is both the right of the individual speaker and the right of everybody else to hear every opinion. Absolutely, And to be sure we don't accidentally or deliberately suppress one position, which we may not know yet is maybe a good one or an important one or an interesting one. So we are trying to put information into the system from as many places as we can. And we don't want some magistrate, some town hall, you know, someone presiding over the town hall or the government with force to be able to say you can't speak any longer here. You're done now.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we're often used to thinking about free speech as sort of a right of personal expression or artistic expression. What this does is it grounds it centrally in democratic legitimacy and from the beginning makes it part of the question of what it means to, in the first place, have a democracy. So, you know, what's powerful about the metaphor is if there was a vote at the end, it would look like a, you know, I don't know, Soviet style vote where it's pro forma. It's not a real debate. It's not it's not what I would consider a legitimate or a real democracy. And the,
1: the point you just made about legitimacy, so that's your favorite theorist, so that's Alexander Michael John's idea, that otherwise yeah. democracy is not legitimate because it's not based on informed consent, that actually we exactly. all ultimately agreed to be governed in a way, but we all had a way to participate in this process, this option, presumably thinking we all adult citizens who have a vote and who can participate and share equally in information and exchange, Right. So this exactly. legitimacy, yeah. otherwise you end up having perhaps a democracy, but it isn't quite as legitimate as one would want it to be.
0: Right? Yes, I think that's right. You know, in the extreme sense, it's not legitimate at all. Imagine no free speech or there's intervention in each of these instances. To, to back to the kind of contemporary politics, you know, people might say, oh, this is an abstract metaphor. Does it really apply in American government? But if you look at real cases in the history of the U.S., we certainly have not had this rule of viewpoint neutrality for the entire history of the republic. It's relatively recent. So if you look at the Debs case, for instance, where Debs was in prison for, I mean, it's more complicated than this, but broadly for violating an act that made it illegal to speak out against the United States Constitution and to criticize the foundational form of government or, you know, cases in which the Schenck case cases of leftists, basically, who were advocating anarchism or leftist politics. And because the law was crafted in a way that was much broader than the current protection of viewpoint neutrality, it allowed for censorship of people because of their opinion. Now, you know, these were radicals. I think there's no other way to describe it. But in my view, the metaphor extends. You know, if you if you really want to say you're a democracy, you have to hear the most robust Critiques of
1: it. Right. And th- so we end up with this viewpoint neutrality principle, which, is, as you say, is it's, let's say, fairly recent in the history of our country. So it's about 50 yes. years or so. So after, right. about yeah. 50 years ago, we get this kind of viewpoint neutrality idea that really the government has no business deciding this viewpoint is better than another one or this one is too dangerous for anybody to really listen to, so we should suppress it. So if it were, let's say, communism or overthrowing the government or some anti-constitutional or unconstitutional idea, we should still debate it, right? Right. So on this side, there seems to be no real quarrel with that. So in some ways, why would anybody worry about this? And why don't you think all liberals <laughs> just sign up and all conservatives sign up with this? And somehow we have people on all sides who are not quite happy with the state of affairs. So... To your second point, so there's some type of speech that poses, is it a theoretical or a real threat to this conception?
0: You know, when I wrote the book, people said it was a theoretical threat. (laughs) I don't know if there's a website for your podcast, but I'll show you some of the responses. This this was four years, a couple years ago? It came out 2012, and so there there have been several symposia in academic journals over the last few years before the Trump presidency. And I'll give you my favorite response. There is no. It was something like I won't even. I won't embarrass the person, but there is no problem of explicit racism in the United States. So Brett Schneider is arguing against a shadow, and you know I responded by saying I think there is. Well, actually, this this is this is
1: really important. I mean, I think we'll get to it. I think actually there are very reasonable people who say the threshold is not met, the danger is not high enough that even speech we all abhor. That, let's say, violent racism or kind of even what you just said, an example, you know, as as outrageous as it would be calling for genocide or calling for some kind of, you know, sort of treatment. Let's say there is no threat this would be implemented. We can go back to James Madison, Federalist Papers 55. He said, ultimately, people will be better. There will be more good people rather than
0: bad people in America. So, sort of, yeah, I mean, you I have to base the, it on that, right? So, it doesn't I have think to be. You could say that in 2013, you'd have people on your side, and there certainly were people who criticized the book. when you take a middle position like this, not surprisingly, there are two kinds of criticisms. One is this view that we're, we're going to get into that you can respect viewpoint neutrality but still have the state actively oppose hate groups, that it's too strong. It betrays the American tradition. And basically, as you said, You know, the culture will take care of it. That stuff is very minor. It's not a lot of it. It'll disappear. It's not a real threat. And so it doesn't justify this apparatus. On the other side, more from, I guess, Europeans, I'd say I've gotten it, or Australians, they've said my views too weak. So on this first point, I think before the Trump presidency, people said things like that. But now I I don't see how you could believe it. I mean, the president of the United States is an example of a public figure who's embraced Hateful viewpoints, or certainly in the Charlottesville case, and I say this in the book. You know, said that they were equal. Right. <laughs> you know, that it's not going to take sides. There are good people on both sides. That sort of, you know, oh, it's you know all okay. All views are the same. That's a true threat. I mean, to the republic. And that Actually. tests
1: that tests the theory that we can say we can tolerate all this speech, but we must never condone or endorse it. But You've carved out a slightly different position. So in your book, right. so when the state speaks, your position is kind of what you call value democracy, which is slightly different to say it's viewpoint neutrality, yes, but the state must do something else. Right? Could you explain That's this is a kind of a new proposal? It's a little bit different, right. I think, from other people.
0: Yeah, I think it's new. I, I, don't, I haven't seen anyone else take the, this position, at least before, but the view is that viewpoint neutrality is right for all the reasons that we've been talking about up until now. But because of, at the time I said the potential, now I'd say the the real present threat of these viewpoints winning out that they pose to the republic and the opposition really that they pose to the underlying idea of democracy, they are anti-democratic viewpoints, hateful viewpoints almost by definition. They deny the equality under law of people based on race and gender and I'd add sexual orientation. Can we stay there for a moment? Can you explain it yeah. a bit more? So an
1: anti-democratic viewpoint. So yes. what we want to get to is to say, it's, is it just a viewpoint? But to just define what is anti-democratic about it? Or what, it goes against what
0: principles? In the, I would say that one of the core, just in the American context, I'll put it this way, one of the core principles, maybe the core principle of American democracy is the idea of equal protection under law. And what our 14th Amendment did in transitioning us in the 19th century after the Civil War from what was, I think, clearly an undemocratic constitution to a democratic one is a principle of inclusion that says we're not going to basically demean you based on your race or your gender or your sexual orientation. So imagine that to go back to our metaphor that the moderator, this is an even more kind of absurd example of a moderator limiting people in an undemocratic way, doesn't allow African Americans to speak. Well, that, that cuts against the core idea in democracy of inclusion. And I don't mean by democracy, I should say, I'm, I'm talking about legitimate democracies, not just something that has the form of the democratic procedures, but that has the, fu- the fundamental values of democracy. And that includes a non-discrimination principle, an idea that we're equal under law and hateful viewpoints, uh, the way I define them are opposed to that that idea.
1: Can you say something about equality you say the 14th amendment so that just was ratified 150 years ago this month actually you know 1868 mm-hmm. right July 15th so it's ratified much later which means it actually revises or teaches us how to look at the entire constitution it doesn't right. mean it's lesser because it's number 14 But people sometimes tend to think, well, the first one really means a lot because it's number one, right? They're they're not ordered by by importance, but they're just sort of sequentially ordered, meaning
0: the latter ones revise the earlier ones. The 14th Amendment infuses values into the Constitution of equal protection throughout it. It applies the Bill of Rights to the states. It reorders our constitutional values in a fundamental system. I mean, I think it's continuous with many of the principles of the original constitution and many of the framers had this idea of equality, but there was slavery before it. And so that's when I say it was undemocratic. I mean, in this very blunt sense, it was a, a, a dual system of apartheid for some people and, and democracy. Can for others. you
1: say something about the words in the Declaration of Independence that Daniel Allen has written about quite a bit? We hold these truth to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So equality shows up earlier than the 14th oh, yeah. Amendment. So this is, is, is that text for you as a political theorist or, and a legal scholar as significant? It's not for constitutional lawyers, perhaps. It's the Declaration of Independence. Right. But does it inform this debate at all where equality fits into this?
0: I think so I mean it, it's the foundational statement of what the Republic is supposed to be about and of course you know the, Thomas Jefferson was a slaveholder and so there is a fundamental I mean calling it hypocrisy understates it a kind of evil contradiction between the values of equality and what they actually did in the original constitution and to me protection clause is a way of beginning it's not certainly the end of it to make good legally on this principle that wasn't unfortunately enshrined into law in the Constitution. In fact, we, we did the opposite with the three-fifths compromise, the postponement of the discussion of making the, the slave trade illegal. There are a number of provisions that basically just ignored the equality idea. So that, that's why the 14th Amendment is so important. So we've got this value of free speech in our First Amendment, and then we've got this value of equal protection in, in the 14th. And You know, a way that I'm – some people talk about balances. I think that's been the European approach, that you can do both. And I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to keep both the absolutist approach of the First Amendment free speech protection and a way of giving value to the commitment to equal protection.
1: And that's where you come in and you say this is where the state not just can use its expressive capacity. It cannot just speak. It must speak and say something. So you want to maintain a kind of absolutist commitment to say – the state should stay out of the business of regulating speech, except in these unusual exceptional circumstances, libel, direct incitement to immediate violence and all of that, They're the ones that are known to people. Stay out of regulating speech by content. So keep the viewpoint neutrality. But then it must do something else. So so how can the state actually speak if you think about that, which is a metaphor, I guess. That, where does it yes. take place?
0: Yes. Uh, And thank you for that. You stated it perfectly. It's not just that the state can, but that it's obligated to really, I mean, there's a kind of phrase that's usually attributed to Robert Frost that I think captures it. He says a liberal is a person who can't take his or her own side in an argument. And I'm trying to say this is how actually liberals can both keep that free speech protection the most robust way, but defend the fundamental values of democracy. And now how can that be done? government has a variety of ways of speaking and the phrase state speech comes from a doctrinal area, a very complicated but important one in First Amendment jurisprudence. The idea is that sometimes the state isn't regulating or punishing or doing something that involves private action. It's actually on behalf of itself taking a stand about something. So I'll give you some very easy examples. Public holidays are a very kind of first example of public speech. When we celebrate Martin Luther King Day, what the state is doing, in my opinion, is saying, yeah, there were two sides in the 1960s battling out about civil rights. There were the seg- segregationists and the Bull Connors, and there were the, you know, the people advocating for the end of segregation and living up more fully to the ideals that I mentioned in the Equal Protection Clause. Now, it would be weird if the state, when it was speaking through its holidays, was neutral, because it would need to have a Bull Connor Day alongside Martin Luther King Day. And so with, when the government says we're going to have Martin Luther King Day, it's taking a stand about the issue of segregation. It's certainly not being viewpoint neutral. It's proclaiming the importance of the public holiday. Now, that's one example. Education is another and funding so is to, compl-
1: pu- to push you a little bit on this one, so couldn't someone say under some very narrow, abstract, legal reasoning, and I'm not a lawyer for good reason, I would say, well, I'm being compelled to express a viewpoint I don't agree with by not being able to go to school or do something on Martin Luther King Day because I'm forced to, which the legal term would be compelled to express an opinion I don't agree with. What if I don't agree with the values of Dr. King and I say I want to have another opinion, but the state is now compelling me to participate in some activity that makes me
0: express this this belief or sentiment or yeah good I mean you, you could imagine somebody saying that in some particular context but we'd have to look at the facts. So there are examples where you would be the holiday itself, I don't think it does anything like that. So you just have to look. All it does is it, it proclaims on behalf of the state that there'll be a day off for this purpose, but it doesn't say to somebody you have to get up there and pledge that Martin Luther King was a great person. Now if it did do that If it made somebody – every Martin Luther King Day we had to gather in the square and we had to pledge allegiance to Martin Luther King. That is a compelled speech First Amendment violation. So again, even when the state is speaking, we have to always shape it and organize it in a way that doesn't involve certainly compelled compelled speech. So you're first of all saying the state does speak. It does on occasion different ways. That's just a fact, yeah. I mean – or you you, you could see it all over the place. So think of monuments, right? That's another – popular thing that I write about in the book, but now is taken off as a topic. We have on the National Mall on public property, uh, a monument devoted to Martin Luther King, not to Bull Connor. You don't have to go there. But right. when you go there, it is the government of the United States endorsing the ideals of the mountaintop and the you know notion of equality under law and his vision of it. So again, you could say, well, is that compelled speech? No, nobody's forced to go. And we'd have to go through the arguments. If you were forced to go, then, then we'd be right. in trouble. <laughs> and generally, you say that we can have this
1: viewpoint neutrality, which is a kind of close to absolutist position. It's not absolute, meaning there's no regulation of speech. It just means we don't decide based on political content, as long as the state also does these other things. So as long as the state endorses the value, and you describe the value in your book as equality on principle. Right. Could you say a little bit more of what if the state doesn't fulfill this obligation? Does it weaken the first position or does the first position, and I'm I'm going to get to, people then start to doubt whether it's really viewpoint neutrality or whether it's actually, well, the state kind of condones
0: certain types of speech over other ones. I mean, I guess what I would say, tell me if this answers it, that when government is regulating private speech, that's when the viewpoint neutrality occurs. That's when it has to be viewpoint neutral. So if I'm going to put somebody in jail for their viewpoint, that's clearly unconstitutional. Say the president wants to put his, just theoretically, political opponents in prison. That's a violation, you know, clearly of viewpoint neutrality. Or if you had a case like Debs again, or putting anarchists in jail, those are all places where viewpoint neutrality applies. And if we did those things, we would violate it. But when it comes to state speech, what I'm saying is, that rule of viewpoint neutrality is irrelevant. That's not the place for it. The state has to take its own viewpoint. It's not, if somebody said, well, that's not being neutral. I'd say, yes, that's the point. When the government is promoting its own views, it's got to, that's the Robert Frost idea, take a stand on de, right. on behalf of liberal democratic values. That absolutely answers it. If
1: we could go to the example of monuments, which you discuss in your book, and they've yeah. become such a kind of yeah. flashpoint and so volatile, and I've talked to yeah. a couple of people, students, and faculty at the university of virginia where the robert e lee and stonewall jackson statues caused such enormous pain and people have actually lectured me quite extensively and said it is not a speech issue this is a violence issue they said the framing around speech is already incorrect which is interesting so i've i've listened to a lot of people could you Hmm. say something about generally monuments and statues that are put up by a state or the state
0: Sure. I've been pretty focused on the presidency of Donald Trump as the premier issue in, in state speech, but you'll you'll probably laugh at this before his election. One of the most important cases related to monuments was license plates. And can you right. put the Dixie flag on a license plate? And I actually had written a lot about this case involving that question. But I guess what, what I would say about the monuments case and also about the case of the license plates is that you know, there's an obligation of government when it's choosing these monuments. It's not an issue of free speech. It's an issue of obligation to promote an ideal of equality. So what's wrong with the Dixie flag on a, a license plate, what's wrong with the monuments that are celebrating the Confederacy, after all, that pre-Civil War, pre-Fourteenth Amendment Equal Protection Clause Constitution, is that they're they're doing the opposite of what I'm saying government is obligated to do so they are in a way the the worst flouting of the duty to promote an ideal of equality they're promoting the inverse an idea of inequality
1: well and as you know the response has often been kind of the quote this succinct phrase it's heritage not hate and they say yeah. this is not promoting anything you're saying this is not the government taking a position it's just how people used to live and they just want to remember that
0: There's a test that in a related area to what we're talking about that I'm also happy to talk about in the Establishment Clause, the idea that government, when it speaks, is obligated to not endorse a religion. But there's a test that's very helpful in figuring this out. It's called the Reasonable Observer Test. And it says when when you're looking at these monuments, you don't take the position of, you know, even the person who put it up, you take the position of what somebody – an average person looking at this monument would think. And it's not Southern heritage. People know the connotation of these monuments and the history of the South. And in fact, they were put up during the battle over segregation. They're not 19th century statues. They are resistance statues to the idea of integration. So when you take the history, when you take the context, and when you take the position of the observer, rather than you know, just somebody who wants to defend them, I, I think that their meaning is clearer than a lot of people would let on.
1: That a reasonable observer who is kind of an honest broker in this would say this yes. is pretty transparent what they're defending is yeah. not. Just and knowledgeable
0: an of the facts. I mean, that's also crucial of where they come from and what the history is. I just think it's a hard argument to make that they're somehow, you know, just neutral right. historical statues.
1: If I can ask you about this idea that the government can maintain a kind of neutrality approach towards speech, but must endorse or espouse other values. When it comes yeah. to the university, this argument has been yeah. made in other cases. So there's kind of Lee Bollinger's very well-known book, The Tolerant Society, after Skokie, mm. where he says, ultimately, we should be, have a kind of abstract idea that speech must be tolerated. But toleration does not mean what he calls condonation. We should tolerate the right to speak mm. in this quasi Voltairean idea. It wasn't Voltaire who ever said that, but sort of, I'll defend your right to speak to the death, even mm-hmm. if it goes against me. And then Bollinger says, We can do this because, as you said earlier, because there's no risk really of anybody taking over America. He said that, that his <laughs> example was anti Semitism, and he said it isn't so bad that we have to be worried about it. Mm. I think the question would be. It was after Skokie, and it was a question he answered in this very thoughtful book. And it was a question answered: if you are the target of such speech, you may not agree. You may not think it's not dangerous enough for me and my community. It may not become the dominant ideology of America, but it really targets me specifically.
0: Yeah, I also think he was writing at a different time. I mean, now there is an existential threat posed to American democracy by the rise of hate groups. They were rising during Obama in reaction to his presidency. And now there is a third of the country who is supportive of Donald Trump, seemingly no matter what he says and how racist and how antithetical his statements are to democratic values. That's very worrying. A lot of other studies suggest that the opposition to Obama from the beginning, that about a third was due to, you know, that race, let's, I'll put it mildly, played a huge role in it. Those are, once that gets politicized, that isn't just a threat on a micro level, it's a threat, period. So the real question to me is how do you fight it? I mean, that's what we're really talking about, both on a micro level, of course, that matters, and also on a macro level. And my answer is that we don't need to just abandon the commitment that Bollinger said when the facts change, that there are tools outside of the criminal law for doing this. And that's partly things like holidays and trying to have government act in a way that promotes these values, but also more specifically in terms of funding and also aggressively pursuing, unlike Skokie, I think a lot of people thought that the battle in Charlottesville was gonna be like Skokie, but those people came with the intent of provoking a riot. And so Roberta Kaplan and others are going after them on civil matters because there was an intent to incite. So that's a kind of other category, too, where threats themselves can be combated. And
1: can you say something about this changed situation with uh, President Trump? So President Carter, when he was interviewed about Skokie, he didn't want to answer. He was kind of cornered. And they said, what do you Mm -hmm. think? And he said, you know, abhorrent. We disagree with all of these views. They're vile. They're un-American. They're anti-American. But we leave it to the courts. President, you know, George Walker Bush, when he was asked about David Duke, he actually said something about a local state election in Louisiana and said, this is not someone who ought to represent American citizens. He's not fit to be a politician. So he actually intervened in a political battle that would not be appropriate for a president. So from Carter to Bush to Clinton to Bush to Obama, every president had always said, I will respect the law which means you can say whatever you want as a private citizen, mm-hmm. but I really strongly condemn this type of speech.
0: Exactly. And my theme in the entire book is protect the speech, recognize it has a, an entitlement to exist, especially if a person's running for office, but government also has to condemn it. And those presidents did exactly what I'm saying. It was almost intuitive that that's what they should do. So when Trump said there are good people on both sides of the battle of Charlottesville, the people who came to riot and the people who you know were rioted against, it stands out as a violation of the core principle that I'm talking about, that government, the president, certainly a primary role of the president is the bully pulpit. It's to speak. It's to set the national tone, the values. And so the president, when he disregards that tradition that you so well put in, I'd add Obama when the Koran was burned on the West Coast and there were riots in Pakistan and other places, he defended free speech in these ads and uh, State Department at least did and condemned also the burning of the Koran. And that tradition is a, is a pretty long and important one. There are early examples of presidents who are more in Trump's tradition. Woodrow Wilson is a terrible example of a, you know, well, let's just be blunt, a, a president who used the bully pulpit in a racist rather than a non-racist way. But when Trump did this, it really broke with this core obligation of presidents to defend. Think of the oath, right, to defend, uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. That includes, in the modern sense, primarily the Equal Protection Clause, and yet a president is failing to do it. And I think, I've
1: asked this before, I think in a, in a strange way, I actually think President Trump, echoed a lot of sentiment that had been quite prevalent and that I'd been actually witness to and directly <laughs> been sort of yeah. su- subjected to by a, a huge number of liberals who said, until Charlottesville, the, you must hear both sides. And he Ooh. meant to ape or kind of echo this sentiment in a kind of clumsy way because he has this kind of gift to explode politically taboo subjects. Yeah. And he meant to say there are positions on both sides we should listen to. He ended up saying something really offensive to a lot of people, but I think he actually tried to be in this way of, well, there's two sides to everything. And what I'm interested in is that the students in university conflicts had said for quite a while, we don't really trust that you guys are so viewpoint neutral. We actually think you're sort of tolerating a little bit too much the other side. You're allowing these racists to come to campus and you keep on intoning the First Amendment, the First Amendment, but we don't see, see enough what you say this kind of core obligation by people in authority to speak out very loudly and strongly against that yeah. viewpoint.
0: Well, I mean, I was visiting at University of Chicago law school when they were drafting the Chicago principles and this is sort of a great place to maybe think about it. And I mean, I'll just say what my suggestion was. They, in, in the end, didn't take it. There was an earlier report by, called the Calvin Report, the turn of the century, Actually, I, I don't want to get the date wrong. I think it was later. is more mid, closer to mid-century. But the, the Calvin Report, at any rate, had a provision in it when it said from time to time when the university's values are threatened, it actually, as a speaker, that was the point, can take its own viewpoint. And so my suggestion, addition, addendum to the principles, the Chicago principles on free speech, which are very neutralist in their way of talking. They basically say the university's obligation is to protect all viewpoints and not to intervene. I agree with that when you're talking about regulating. But I think you also need the university to take a stand against certainly hate groups. So in the Berkeley case, should Milo have the right to come to campus if he's invited by a campus group? Absolutely. But I think the university as an institution also should and can, and people who think the First Amendment prohibits this are flat out wrong for reasons I've explained, condemn them. And so I yes, I think that this I've got a a lecture that I just gave at the University College London and a kind of draft of this project where what I'm saying is that, yes, the university also should protect all viewpoints, make it clear that you're not going to get kicked out for for saying something, even racist, denying the Holocaust. I don't think that's a a offense worthy of being thrown out of a university. But should professors (laughs) correct people who deny the Holocaust? Should they speak out against hate groups or against, yes. And should the university presidents on behalf of the university in their official capacity? Absolutely.
1: Can you explain a little more from the analogy of what the state can do in its expressive capacity? Because I think a lot of students and faculty have said, it just doesn't suffice right now to just say, well, we strongly disagree with person X, but uh, he or she can come to campus. And they say, well, that statement is drowned out in the Bruhaha and the social media and this person is just going to exploit having been given this opportunity to speak at UC Berkeley. And the statement by the chancellor or president or dean, whoever, is completely lost on everybody else.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll say two things. One is, I do think that pure speech can be effective if it's used well, not just in a, a memorandum, but you know, if there's a, so Bollinger actually, I can't remember if this made it into the book or not, but I am, I thought that he was onto something in the famous Iran case where Ahmadinejad came and spoke and he condemned him first. I have a slight tweak to it, which is that he condemned him. My understanding is before he spoke. Yeah. And I think he might've waited <laughs> until after. But, you know, that made news. It was, I don't think anybody thought that Colombia was complicit. If anything, they thought he was too aggressive. So
1: just restate the case was Ahmadinejad was invited to speak. Bollinger introduced him and did did what you want him to do, right? To say, we completely condemn and disagree with everything you're about to say. Right. I might have
0: waited until after he spoke. At which which
1: Ahmadinejad said, I regret to see that you have no faith in your students' capacity to form their own opinions because they should just listen to me and think whether I'm right or not.
0: (laughs) Right, right. And that's a nice battle between my view and the neutralist one. And I just add, if you did it after the fact, if you listen to it, that it's compatible. When the university president condemns them, it doesn't take away from students' rights to believe what they want. They're not getting kicked out if they choose Ahmadinejad over, over Bollinger. So I think that the president of Iran in that case was just wrong and Bollinger was right. But that said, you know, I also agree that it's not enough. And so one of the things in the book, a big part of it, and in the constitutional jurisprudence, this is a huge controversy. I think that when it comes to state funding, and we might analogize too with the funding of student groups, that the government and the university can promote certain viewpoints. Now, this is a very Complicated area of law, but a recent case illustrates the controversy, and I'll, I'll give both sides. You know, we're in heavy terrain now. The Christian Legal Society is a student group at Hastings Law School, and they allow gay students to be in the group, but they are not don't allow them to be president, vice president. They can't have officer positions. And Hastings defines the group. They say basically, you can meet on campus, you can use the facilities if you know as a student but you, you're not going to be recognized as an official student group you can communicate on email but we're not going to fund you that was the crucial idea and the christian legal society sued they got an amazing first amendment lawyer michael mcconnell to defend them he did a great job but in the end what the court said and i agree with the conclusion i don't agree with the reasoning but what the court said in the end was you know no basically if university funding for the travel fund for recognizing the group doesn't mean the strictest kind of protection of all viewpoints. Now, they tried to fudge it a little. They claimed that that was consistent with viewpoint neutrality. I think that's not a clean way to do it. The truth is because they said tolerance was viewpoint neutral. So that part of the reasoning, I really don't like. It's not being neutral. They're saying that basically this group that is discriminating, you know, is going to be defunded, period. And I think that's consistent with the state speech idea, the obligation to promote values of equality and not others. And I think universities can and should do that. That if a group, if it's doing it, there's an earlier case, for instance, about defunding Christian groups. I think that's discriminatory in itself. It shouldn't do it that way. But if it's saying we're not going to give funds to hate groups or groups that are actively pro-MILO, that's not only allowed, certainly under the jurisprudence, but it's a good thing to do. So that's a way of, of showing that, you know, it's not this either or, it's not allow it or don't allow it. It's allow it and condemn it, allow it and defund it. Promote other ideas. You know, I mean, certainly a a anti-racist group on campus. that's about the university's values of, of forming a community, you know, that's tolerant. That's not racist, that welcomes everybody from all backgrounds. That's where the money should be going. And well, that's not a way of doing it.
1: It's interesting, and you keep on going back to this value of equality, which is Ooh. one in, in higher education. It's it's both a legal concept. that actually has to be implemented. Right. A sort of, you know, there are certain kind of federal requirements that equality right. has to be established. And the courts have always struggled in a way to leave universities alone, let them decide how to best educate and do research and create those conditions, but at the same time without violating any equality principles. Do you think today... When you look back, you wrote this book a few years ago. Now we have a new president, and we have a really kind of heightened attention on the issue of speech. And there's a lot of distrust on both sides. I frankly would not believe that some of the speakers coming to campus are really coming to teach us about the Constitution. I think they're actually there for other purposes, and some of them may be... That they're actually against equality principles, and some of them are real concerns about kind of lack of viewpoint diversity in colleges. Mm-hmm. But where you said earlier, there are modes to counter this, there are more productive ways. It doesn't mean we have to regulate speech the way yeah. Canada or France or the UK would, but we can stay Americans, stay the course, even in this time of crisis. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: This, is, yeah. I guess that's your book coming out also that you are hopefully yeah, send, sending well, like, to the White House. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think people should buy, buy one and send one to the White House. Yes. Uh, I mean, what the Oath in the Office is about is just trying to say that these are the ideals of the American Constitution. They include the protection, certainly, of all viewpoints. And they include also, I mean, the book isn't just about speech. There are chapters on the bully pulpit and a chapter on free speech and a chapter on the establishment clause. And those are the most speech related. But it's also about other areas, certainly about executive orders, about the war powers, and also about, in the end, the question, I guess, which gets to what you're saying, of how to stop a president that disregards the oath and, and what to do. And we have mechanisms of trying to stand up to the president can say whatever he or she wants, but if they repeatedly speak out against the Constitution, the impeachment process allows for the removal of a president that violates the oath of office. And I think Among the different things that might be brought up in stopping a president, that's one of them. So, yes, there are tools in American government, for universities. There's lots of leeway, I think, between the protecting on the one hand and the doing nothing, basically.
1: Are you concerned in some ways, and if you're teaching in a university when students express to you concern, are you concerned that there's a a threat to be long lasting traditions of our democratic ways of doing things in this current moment? Or is this an un- unwarranted concern as they will get through? There's no problem. Constitution. is.
0: Strong. I mean, I, I think this sort of nightmare scenario that I'm talking about in the book, I mean, I begin the book in you know, the When the State Speaks by talking about two dystopic visions, right? That is the one that Europeans fear if you have the First Amendment protection of all people, you don't have the tradition of militant democracy that says, you know, parties are going to be banned if they're Nazi or fascist and you allow all of them in the nightmare scenario I call the hateful society and it's one in which the First Amendment allows for the percolation I guess is the right word of hateful viewpoints that spread and take over now yeah I think that when one third of the country is voting for this president no matter what he says and when the president the leader the person supposed to be speaking on behalf of all of us says there are two sides in the debate between racist uh, Nazis and their opponents—that is an existential threat to American democracy. So it is imperative that we start to think about mechanisms for stopping it. And you know, some of it is using counter speech. And but in the book, I you know, I go way beyond what I'm saying in the, the specific question of you know about the rules of hate speech. That you know, the states have an obligation in speaking out, of, in resisting. I think federal policy that tries to commandeer them, and the Constitution creates not just the right to speak out against the president through the first amendment free speech protection, but many, many mechanisms to, to resist. I was involved in the travel ban case, which is about the idea that even though a president can say whatever he wants, he can't make laws based on prejudice. And right. that's jurisprudence. That's very clear that, you know, lawmaking is different from Poli- speaking political speech. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the court's done that repeatedly in lots of cases. There's a case in Florida Where they said a city council can't make an ordinance based on the idea that they hate the Santeria. There's a case in Colorado that says that a Colorado law that was based on anti gay motivation that would strip gays of all their rights, that's not good law. So the courts have been willing to stop it. Now, when it came to the travel ban, I thought, okay, you know, I I did an amicus brief with two friends and we were cited in the Fourth Circuit and they agreed with us. We were cited by the dissent. We said, If you can't make law or policy based on animus, the president's speech might be protected, his anti-Muslim speech, but he can't make a a policy of banning people from coming to the country based on it. And we got four votes for that position. We got four votes against us. And Justice Kennedy, our crucial vote, sort of didn't want to take a side. He said both sides were right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) voted with the majority but said maybe we should relitigate this in the lower court. So – you know that was a disappointing moment, but just because you can say whatever you want doesn't mean that you can do in policy whatever you want. Right, right.
1: But that's your main, your main argument is that distinction that you should keep this kind of commitment to robust speech open as long as there are other mechanisms by which you can Absolutely. demonstrate your values.
0: So correct, that's correct. Right. The, the democracy has to be able to. Larry Lessig, who I don't know if you've interviewed yep. him. He was my teacher at Stanford Law School, and he invited me to give a talk when he was the head of his center at Harvard, the Center for Ethics. And he introduced me by saying this is going to be an example of militant democracy light. And, you know, he was sort of like, you know, you could see what he's saying, right? That militant democracy is about the idea that we don't allow racist political parties. We ban certain kinds of And Corey is not a militant Democrat. He sort of is. And he was sort of, you know, teasing, I think. But I, I embrace that. Like, I love that. Yeah, it is a kind of militant democracy without the edge or the criminal aspects of, of what it required. And the criminal aspect would be it's militant
1: democracy, meaning democracy that takes seriously its right to defend itself. Right. You're saying without changing the laws in undemocratic ways that you would right. say. And so without
0: criminalizing hate speech and without. I mean, the other thing that I say in the book is we shouldn't criminalize political parties either, based on their viewpoint. And militant democracy, of course, does that. It outlaws Nazism, for instance. And and I defend the idea that David Duke has a right to run for office, even though, you know, we have to stop him at the same time through these other and, methods.
1: And that kind of act that you're saying, we have to stop people like this while we can tolerate that they may be able to participate in the political process. So that... Right. And I think this is the question that's sort of still in front of us, whether there's enough commitment on the other side or whether people have found ways. So your book, The Oath in the Office, is the book that recommends some ways to counter that, to take some action, to not give up hope and say we can't do anything and we must yeah. throw up our hands and view of this kind of you know, free speech absolutism. But say free speech absolutists, yes, is as long as you're committed to equality and actually demonstrate that commitment in other ways.
0: Yeah, the book is called The Oath in the Office. And you you said the sort of snarky subtitle, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Of course, it's immediately about our current president. And a big portion of the book is about these mechanisms that we have. Now, this goes beyond speech, but to stop a president who disregards the oath. I mean, not just when it comes to speech, but, you know, in a variety of different ways. One crucial thing that this takes us beyond the, the question of speech, but is when it comes in the criminal law to the question of whether or not the president can be indicted, we're in the midst of a big debate about this. And I take a strong Madisonian, I call it, position throughout the book about constraints on the presidency. There are some who think the president is special, the president cannot be subject to criminal law while in office, criminal indictment. And it looks like this new nominee to the Supreme Court, unfortunately, has that view. And I, in that that book, take a strong position on the other side, with, by the way, Ken Starr and the nominee's previous position, which was that the president is not above the law and can be indicted in office, and that even though he has a right to speak, certainly, that he doesn't have a right to commit crimes. The other relevant section might be in impeachment, where I do say that one of the, in addition to obstruction of justice and other questions, that the impeachment question goes beyond what you can do in the criminal context. You can't criminalize the president's speech, I think. You can't put him in jail for saying racist things. But can you impeach him for saying racist things? I think so. I say that impeachment is not a criminal process. The phrase high crimes and misdemeanors is not meant to convey criminal law. There's no criminal category of high crime. It's about disregarding the oath. So certainly these statements are on the table when it comes not to criminal punishment, but to removal from office.
1: Interesting. So the Oath in the Office is coming out in late August or early September 2018. We may have a new Supreme Court Justice at that point confirmed. Now fast it's going to work who disagrees with some of these precepts. So, Corey Schneider, thank you so much. I really hope people are going to read your book and take some kind of sustenance and courage to actually see that there's other ways to combat what's happening in, in the wrong ways in this country while protecting the democracy.
0: Thank you, Yuli. This This was terrific. Thank you for reading the book so closely, *The State Speaks*, and and for the terrific conversation at such a high level. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks so much,
1: and I will hope we'll speak again. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.
0: Bye.